Hey everybody, I'm here with Bruce Clavey. Really, really excited to have Bruce on the program to school us about Texas history. As somebody from Louisiana, I think this is going to be a fun conversation because I got a totally different education in Louisiana. I think Louisiana and Texas are very uh, distinct in their history for a variety of reasons. But uh, Bruce, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Again, your website is just above you, bruceclavey.com. You can also find him as an established author on Amazon and on Facebook. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Robert. It's good to be here. What do you want to talk about, Bruce? What is uh, of interest? Now, I, I will say, as we did like the promo interview or whatever it was before the podcast started, you were talking about Stephen F. Austin's, <laughs> his... Was it where he was in prison? Is that what it was? He was in prison, yes. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much a standard part of the uh, Texas Revolution story that things really got underway as far as what separated Texas from Mexico when Stephen F. Austin, who was the impresario, was arrested and put into a dungeon prison in the Palace of the Inquisition in Mexico City. And uh, so for, for 200 years, that was that was part of the story. It was even written into the... Texas Constitution, when Texas became a country of its own, that it was predicated <laughs> on these events, just like the Declaration of Independence of the United States started off by focusing on the events that had happened with King George and so forth. That's what the, the Texas Constitution, or te Declaration copied. And they mentioned this story. So it, it figures in as being the, the thing that really got uh, things kicked off. So for 200 years, uh, the location of his cell wasn't really known. And uh, what we were talking about uh, was that a few years ago, while searching for something else, I actually had uh, access to his the small diary that he had secreted into the prison where he drew little pictures of the, the Palace of the Inquisition where he was at. And I thought, well, this should be able to be solved. And so I went on to find, use those clues to actually track through Mexican history and connect up the dots to the, the architectural building of the of the palace and actually find the location of his cell and in doing so led some Mexican historians to that that spot and was able to kind of carve my little niche into Texas history doing that so <laughs> ended up uh, writing a book on that a year later and uh, so that's probably part of what's in the the publication so i'm talking to the actual Texas version of Indiana Jones <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, when I first came home and uh, told my family this story, my, my brother's first response is, well, where do you keep your whip and fedora? <laughs> and, but he said it with more of a sneer. <laughs> it's so amazing to me, just for a second, to think about, you know, professional historians, archaeologists, like, in other words, all of the intellectuals who are doing all this research and then because it's so broad and vast, you'd think, well, we know all this stuff, right? And it's like, no. But when somebody fixates on this one piece of minutia and really starts doing research to try to unravel this one specific topic and they go, it, like, we don't know. So there's all this stuff that could be known if people are willing to dig and research and spend an inordinate amount of time searching. That's really a good point, Robert, because we've, we have uh, had – a unique Texas experience. And first of all, I'm not a historian. I just want to let you, uh, let you and everybody know that. By by trade, I'm a, a writer and a, and a programmer. So I just kind of happened onto some of this story and was able to 
you know, carve out a little niche in it by doing some uh, research on my own with this. But the but the part of what you said that's that's really true is that that we've kind of gotten locked into some of a a narrative of Texas that, and I really love that narrative. It's a historic narrative that that tends to center around stories like the Alamo and the revolution and and the, the great overturn of the Mexican army and the establishment of the Texas Republic. Those are all stories that mean things to to Texans of, of previous generations. And the what's exceptionally true of what you just said is that we have only recently begun to wake up to the idea that there was a Texas for 200 years before there were Americans <laughs> in in Texas that were creating businesses, you know, that, that started this whole revolution thing. And their story, which is the story of the Tejano, you know, the, the Latino base that, that existed out of Mexico City and of Spain prior to the coming of Americans, that story has been forced kind of to the back in favor of a story that's a very compelling story of how they joined together in Texas to overturn the Mexican army. So, but it's it's sort of the, the story of a population that that played its part and then began to recede in knowledge from the, the Texas story. And now it's just beginning to start to come back, you know, with 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 a vengeance and a force, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a good day to live in Texas history. <laughs> when you uh, emailed me back and forth, I got super excited and I've had people in the podcast recently of like, in other words, you specifically in this podcast doesn't have anything. I think as most people think, you know, to do with like health and wellness or particularly massage. And I, I think of wellness and such a broad categorization where it's almost like, understanding the history of where you come from and, and where you're going. And when you wrote in there, oh, well, basically the history of Texas is this discussion between England and Spain and colonialism. And I'm just like, yes, <laughs> I got, I got more excited over that sentence than I had in the past six months teaching massage therapists about the stuff I do. And even more so, I took a trip. I'm originally from Baton Rouge, but spent a lot of time in New Orleans. I just took a vacation back to New Orleans for a week. So I kind of got to go backwards to right. French and Spanish, you know, influence, Creoles and English and this and that. And then, and then I come back to Texas and I'm like, wow, it's so vastly different. And when I was in school, much like I think in Texas, like Texas students in school have to take Texas history in the same way that I had to take Louisiana history. And Louisiana history did not go into any great detail about Texas. And there's this huge dividing line where I feel like once you cross the Sabine, you are in a different country. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Absolutely right. And you've got to, you, you, I, I think it's excellent that you come from Louisiana and you had that experience. And I've, I've often told people about what you just said, that it was, it's an experience in uh, Texas education that's drilled into students, you know, from all through the, the, the K through 12 experience to know their Texas history. And that's not a small thing. It's actually a, when you look at the adults who today are raising their kids, they went through that Texas school system to get that in, to get that, uh, let's just say in, ingraining or in, indoctrination, <laughs> you know. And as they 
as they see their own kids through the system, what they're doing is they're sort of transferring Texas culture down from one generation to the next. And so when you get the national appreciation slash ridicule of Texas for, for being into itself, you can look to these types of experiences to say that that adults were once kids that came up through the system and were, were given that appreciation you know, from a, an atomic level to become the Texans that they are. I wanted to kind of feed back on one thing that you said, which is kind of, it's really a kind of a cool thing that I don't think even most Texans know, is that we're, we're in a period right now, like this year, where we're talking about the, the real roots of, of, uh, of Spanish Texas in Louisiana. And most, most Texans don't know that the first capital of Texas is in modern-day Louisiana. <laughs> so we, we tend to think of Austin, Texas. No, there were several capitals before Austin, Texas. And even in the 1700s, San Antonio was considered to be the, the well, particularly the Latin capital of, of Texas. And it was bounced around a few places. But for a long, long time, the capital of Texas was over in where the missions were being established among the, at, at the line between the French and the Spanish over uh, in what's now Louisiana. So you're, you're guarding Robert and hogging the first capital <laughs> of Texas. Uh, and uh, and just, just, just a fun fact to, to be able to share and, and tell people as they get to know their Texas. Yeah. There's so much like it. Going through and taking a tour while I was in New Orleans, I was even taken aback by the fact that and I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure there's a reason for this, but it seems like when it came to street names, they were favoring the French over the Spanish. And I don't know if it's because the Spanish were there first and then, like, like I get a little confused about the War of 1812 and the transition and Napoleon is in there somewhere and, you know, <laughs> on and on. Don't rely on me for Louisiana history information, but... It's really, really interesting for me to see the dividing lines. And then for those of you in the United States, Texans aren't like people in Louisiana love Louisiana, but Texans are fierce. Like they are, it, it is the Lone Star State. They are, and I was like, dude, why are Texans so crazy about Texas? Like everybody's got this little Texas logo with the star on it. Like, they're, you know, it's like we—it's Valentine's, and you got a, a steak that looks like Texas. You know? <laughs> right. Well, Robert, I used to uh, be a docent at the Bob Bullock uh, State History Museum. I was was a docent for years, which meant that I had a, a chance to interact with a lot of people coming both inside of the state and from outside of the state and outside of the country. You know, to to the capital of Texas to learn something about this Texas that they've, that they've heard about in many places. And so it kind of grew a different kind of skin for me because I'm not from Texas. And I, I came to Texas myself as kind of on the on the make fun of train. You know, it's like <laughs> I, I, I lived for most of the years of my life outside of Texas. And it's like you, you could say Texas and I would kind of roll my eyes. Once, once I became a, a representative of Texas, at least for, for those who were visiting the museum, and seeing the fascination that that people had for Texas made me take a, a, a new look at things myself. So, for example, I, I became aware of the fact that that the symbols of Texas are known throughout Europe. So you can go anywhere in Europe and show the Texas flag, 
which lo- looks like in a way a mini two-striped American flag. And, and, and people of all throughout Europe are, will know uh, what, that it represents Texas. And so it's, it's, it's hard to find many other states that have that kind of a state recognition. Now, we can talk about how that recognition got to there, and you can have fun telling some of those stories. And some of them are inspiring, and some of them kind of generate a little bit of a humor. But all of them show how big Texas is in the minds of the people that live in Texas. When you emailed me and you were talking about England and Spain as colonial powers and dealing with their control of the high seas, was I think how you framed it. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So what what I was saying when when we chatted a little bit about that before is it's it's kind of important as we look today at what's happening at the United States border with Mexico, because there's a lot of attention that's being given to what is probably the most visible clash of cultures along that line. And we, we, we tell ourselves stories about it. We, 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 we take news about it. We make it more important sometimes than, than any other news, but it, it, it resonates with us as being a place where there's a direct line between cultures. And when we look at the contrast of cultures that that live on either side of that line, and we talk about the interesting things that have happened in recent times, and then going back through history, you know, in our our history that forms the relationship between the uh, United States and Mexican countries, what I was saying is that that generationally things don't change overnight. In fact we inherit a lot of the things that are important to us in the way that we look at ourselves and look at each other. And if we look at that transition that's given as it's transferred from one generation to the next in parenting, in education, in other kinds of geographic experience, that the things that unite us around one concept of of identity, we can take that transition or that transfer and we can take it fluidly back through generations long back before uh, Republic Texas, long back through Mexican Texas or even Spanish Texas, and we could take it back to a time where there were enmities between countries of Europe. So obviously in that tight little area in, in Northwest Europe where there are three countries that were warring countries, which is Spain, France, and, and England, you all of a sudden had this boom where they escaped their European bounds and came over to claim their parts. I'm going to use that in, in curly quotes, <laughs> claim their parts of this new world and all the peoples that live in it, carve it up for themselves. And all of a sudden you have Spain in the, the southern part of the uh, North American continent and all of South America. And you have England in the northeastern part of, of North America and each of them are colonizing their, their own little area, and they're kind of staying out of each other's way. But as we know, America, the Englands, the, the Englanders, <laughs> the English began to grow out of, out of New England and the West and the Spanish and Mexicans began to grow out of Mexico City and Central America. To inevitable that they were going to clash. And when they clashed, they retained a lot of their enmities from Europe with each other. So that's why we can look at the border today and we can look at that line that that, that moves. And that line has been drawn 
a few different places around Texas uh, over the last couple of centuries, but it always represents that that dividing line between either Spain and France or Spain and England and the enmities that, that come along with that. So the attitudes that we have today are the throwbacks to the and transferred from one generation to the next of the feelings and and struggles that there were between countries four to five hundred years ago. And when I think about four to five hundred years ago, when I was 19, being a student at LSU, I <clears throat> took a trip overseas. Long story short, I was taking ancient Greek and something happened and a professor and I made, was made aware of this program and they were going to Greece and Turkey for a month. And I took out student loans to get out of the country. I was like, you never know if you'll see this stuff again. And man, we went from Athens through the Greek and Turkish islands on the mainland into Istanbul. So it's just with quick east to west. And I got tired of seeing 2000 year old artifacts. And you went, yeah, you know that country you're from where they keep talking about 1776 and 1492? Yeah. Right. That's, that's pre-pubescent. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not very right. old in comparison. And that was the right. thing that it's different when you read it in a book and then when you see it in person and you're like, yeah, this aqueduct we're looking at and this, this bridge we're going over is a thousand years old. You know, it's very, very hard in Western terms in America to start thinking about that. And then like how ancient, you know, the Mayan pyramids are, you know, exactly. the Aztec and the Inca empires were, you know, it's like when I started looking at even like road names, cause I was just in Louisiana and then I was laughing because the people who were with me, I was trying to get them to pronounce, I'm like, pronounce that. And it's like, because a lot of it's French pronunciations, but then you'd hit Chapatulis. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> right? And then it was the additional piece, which I think is something that I'm very interested in. So we talked about England, France, and Spain. One yes. of the things that I'm extremely interested in that I'm trying to get a little bit more of a handle on and realize there's just a mass complexity is Native American history. Yes. And then mm -hmm. the clash that came from those cultures, you know, colliding through Louisiana and then through Texas, completely different geographic terrain. And when I see maps of like ancient uh, tribes in the Americas and like the crossover, I get completely lost because there are probably language distinctions in addition to the geography being so different, you had different tribes inhabiting different areas over time. And, and that's 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 a valid thought as as we approach trying to understand where how, how to present a history that values all of that. Because one thing I think that the early ex European explorers of the the New World discovered is that there were some Native American tribes that were very aggressive and actually were out <laughs> to conquer, whereas uh, there were others that were sedentary and and didn't have didn't have a sense of nation for themselves apart from you know settling a a local area and subsisting from it. So they among themselves had had this warfare, and it's 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 an interesting study to have to see how how they interacted with each other before the very first encounters came along that Europeans into that mix. And in a lot of ways, that that really stirred things up because as 
Europeans began to make their way across territory and encounter Native American tribes, the explorers found these different, these tribes with different ways of dealing with outsiders. And some of them were open to the idea of, uh, and, and welcoming of, of them and what, how that was handled and how that was received, you know, with in, sometimes in terms of conquest, wasn't necessarily the best reception for in in their behalf. But it those that differing concept about how North American tribes functioned even among themselves was something that became a part of the mentality of the Spanish and and the French too. In, in terms of how they were going to enact their takeover of the North American continent. Now, there were different concepts between the Spanish and the French, and the Native Americans actually were able to tell who they were dealing with, even though everybody seemed like they were of a different, like, or of the same, let's say, white face, you know, they were able to learn fairly quickly the difference in concept between whether they were dealing with the Spanish or the French, and in certain instances, there were there were encounters where the, the the say the French got wiped out, you know, as as happened over on the coast of Texas near Victoria, and in within a couple of weeks later, to have the Spanish expeditions come through, they were welcomed and even taken shown around. So, it's the encounters aren't all easy to classify as being one type of experience that that just says. Old world versus new world. It was definitely a chemistry of different styles of old world coming in and and fizzing, you know, with different styles of of new world populations. It makes it difficult and yet important still, though, to understand what those initial encounters meant and and trying to find the the ways to continually engender those populations as we're looking to tell that story today, because. As you know, we're still trying to figure out how to do that well. Oh, so and, and this is this is me. This is your history, where you're from, your culture, the the stuff that makes up you. I come from Louisiana. I grew up in Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge is, you know, red stick because there was a Native American tribe and they delineated borders by that. Then I'm an hour upriver from New Orleans. I grew up in the land of boudin, funk, jazz, creole, gumbo, and I'm white. Like I sunburn easy, you know, but it's like it's what I grew up with as my culture. And I was having a conversation recently with some friends here in Austin, and somehow the Mardi Gras Indians came up. And this guy went, oh, no, it's like, are these white people putting on blackface? And I'm like, whoa, hold on. Mardi Gras Indians are a celebration of Africans who were enslaved, escaping slavery, and going to live with Native American tribes in Louisiana. And they were like, oh. And it's like, yeah, it's that, like, I, I was crying going through New Orleans at point, going through Treme, going to Congo Square, and trying to explain to people, like, that is where jazz came from, because that was the only place that slaves were allowed to play their tribal rhythms. And they go, oh, it's like I grew up an hour from that, but I was so immersed in that culture for so long. It wasn't until I moved away to Pennsylvania near, near Lancaster County, where the Amish are, that I went, whoa, right. I was right. like, 
because you grew up an hour away. It's the same thing. If you're in Texas and you've always lived in Texas and you haven't really traveled extensively throughout the United States away from Texas, it starts to become myopic. And the, the food conversation is one. I always use food and music to connect with people, and that's because I'm from Louisiana. I come to Texas and it's barbecue. And Texas barbecue is very distinct from like Texas and then like further east through the south. And it was like, Texans again, traditional Texas barbecue. And I'm like, dude, traditional Texas barbecue is Czech, German, black, African, <laughs> Mexican. And it congealed into this thing we think of as traditional Texas barbecue, but traditional Texas barbecue is this amalgam of cultures. Right. You know, chili, which is a very distinctly no beans, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like <Yeah>. they're <laughs> making these, you know, firm distinctions. I find it hilarious to, again, like just like you found this one little niche in, in Texas history with Stephen F. Austin in prison in Mexico. You know, I look at something like uh, Taco Chronicles, which is a series on Netflix. I love food. I love tacos. Now I'm in Texas. Tacos are part of my culture. You get my tacos and you're primed for my cold, dead hands. And I look at Taco Chronicles and I see the history of these specific tacos in El Pastor and where it comes from. And I go, man, immigrant, they're changing it. Mexican immigrants, as they're coming into Texas, feel totally comfortable changing it to fit like local palate, local cooking methods, local right. ingredients. So the barbacoa tacos we get in Austin are not the same thing that you're getting in Mexico. Right. And that little piece, that little piece of myopic, a taco. It's like, it's a taco. What's the big deal? Like I had no idea when I got to Austin, I'm like, oh my God, they make tacos out of everything. I didn't know. Tacos <laughs> in Louisiana were, as a white kid was like ground beef, you know, crispy shell. <laughs> it's right, very right. different here. Exactly. And the thing is, that's just that one topic. Right. When you start really digging, it's like, uh, for me, I read the book of 1491 recently. Because I'm interested in Native American history, and it's a pretty epic tome, like covering some very broad things. And because I'm into food, I go, listen, you know that red sauce in Italy? Yeah, tomatoes are from the New World. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, before Columbus, there was no red sauce in Italy. And it's like, you know the, that, the, that corn, you know, that masa they were making the tamales with? Yeah, that's from the New World. Like that right. stuff didn't exist. And then when we go back to Native American history, when we think about the Plains Indians, in the American mythological sense, the Plains Indians, I think, always come up with a feathered headdress on a horse. Horses right. are from the old world. Right. If Native Americans had had access to horses, and because it completely changed transportation for Native Americans, they adopted extremely rapidly into that form that we've mytho mythologized as like the Plains right. Indians on the horse. But that was a relatively recent, you know, adaptation where before they'd primarily been on foot because there weren't animals like bison were not domesticated. You didn't ride them in the same way. So there weren't pack animals. Anyway, uh, neither here nor there. But it's interesting to me when you look at a very, very specific thing. And this is what I'm so interested about, why I was interested in talking with you, when that particular leads to this general thing, like how it fits in to the overall story. Right, and you, you, you talked to, uh, a lot here about, about cultures interfacing with cultures and transitions. And one of the things that's important 
as we look at who are, we are ourselves today and we look at trying to interpret history is that that we can't get at the idea of a history that, that has such sharp-edged eras. What we need to do is understand how the interactions and the encounters between cultures and even between individuals have that changing effect. So you, you, you mentioned, you mentioned Texas and when here in Texas, we look at towns that are named like, they're named like Lano, or I'm, I'm trying to think of a couple of my, my favorite ones. And what we've done is uh, somehow over the last uh, 200 years, we've taken towns that began named with purely Spanish names. Uh, another one of my favorite is we say Perdinales, but it's really Pedronales, you know, <laughs> and Lano is Giano, you know, and we, we, we've taken all these town names and we've, we've refitted them with, with very anglicized ways of pr pronouncing them such that, that if I sometimes think about what happens when somebody that whose first language is, is Spanish comes in and says, how, how do I get from this point to this point? And, and they get all these English instructions on, on, on town names that, that, that the travelers are not able to recognize because they recognize them for their, their original values, you know, things, things like that. So we've, whatever we've touched, we've changed and we've changed it sometimes permanently. And so that chemistry is an ongoing thing. It doesn't really stop to recognize eras and epics and, you know, and, and giant chunks the way that we like to try to chunk it up in order to understand it. So I guess the lesson for us is that you know as we're as we're trying to get especially in this generation which i think is a great generation for for really turning our scope sometimes backwards through history to understand how how folks have had some of their their culture denied to them by by not having it featured in the stories that we like to tell as we look back we need to be able to look back with a refined focus the the items that we're looking at and and try to see them as as developments rather than as as fixtures. I'm I'm going back to to one thing you said about the the the, the, the Louisiana Texas line, and you mentioned the Sabine, and this became such one of these fixtures where where it was originally the the border of te the Mexican border with the United States, you know, <laughs> or at, at least with New France. It, it, it became a fixture just like the Rio Grande is now for, for the dividing line between the United States and, and Mexico. And we have this firewall concept of our, of our borders that say we, that they're, they're almost like uh, flood walls. That, that, that water of culture tends to rise up between them, and we, we create these Texas cultures that are really these rich amalgams of the things that we've inherited from every generation of every culture that's ever inhabited Texas. So how do we take and and begin reforming not that history, but our concept of that history so that we can bring value to the the, the many people that have called themselves Texas over Texans over the centuries. So that's that's sort of some of the questions that I'm asking myself as as I'm trying to write <laughs> through some of these things, both in a, a nonfiction sense, like as as in the, the the book that you were mentioning before, which which is called the the Inquisition of Stephen F. Austin. That is a that's a nonfiction entry in in my 
in my my personal uh, library of writings. The but the the major thing that I'm trying to write and to get out book by book is a series that's called the Republic series. It's called To the Republic, and it's a fictional series. But instead of trying to take an approach as an outsider to to uh, professionalism in history, which I, as I mentioned, I'm not a professional historian, but I am a professional writer. I look at the I look at the things that have that have come across the transom in terms of academia, and there are thousands and tens of thousands of books that you can read, and they're good books if you want to understand a lot of these transitions and a lot of these items that need attention as we move forward. But we don't tend to look to read those things until something in our personal silo directs us towards some of that. But one thing that we all like is entertainment. And so it it became a goal of mine to try to reach out through a fictional story to try to use the the elements that I believe that I understand of especially North Mexican and South Texan uh, culture to be able to frame a story that takes place in the border region to to not tell but show some of the elements that are important in understanding why we have this soft conflict that is represented by that scar that we call the border. And and what we can do by seeing this, rather than taking the word of, of say, national senators and, and uh, representatives that come down for a, a one-hour photo op, you know, some afternoon and get their picture taken and shed a few tears, send their aides down, and then go back with a story to, to you know, to, to make make glaring decisions about, you know, for national policy. How can how can we get some of this information into the hands of people so that so that at an element elemental level of you know our national population we're actually seeing some of these things for what they are and not filtered through politics or the media or yeah. or anything else so that is the goal of of the uh, fictional writing that I'm doing but it's all it's 100 based in in a factual background for Texas Mexico and Spain yeah there's there's so much. I <clears throat> went through public school in Louisiana, went to LSU for a time. And when we talk about LSU, like the quad is now called the Exxon Quadrangle, if that gives you any idea what's going on. The Superdome from New Orleans, for me, like I don't, I'm not a huge sports fan. So when I drove through recently, now it's the Caesars Superdome, which gives you some idea of what happened after Hurricane Katrina and they got to clean it up in Caesars Palace, apparently took over at some point. I'm learning this history and you're trying to look at it contextually, politically, socially, you know, the Spanish, the French, the English, the Louisiana Purchase, Native American tribes, you know, this just crazy amalgam. And then coming into Texas and seeing it transition. So I moved here from Baton Rouge a year after Hurricane Katrina, because I was just crestfallen. I'm like, nope, gotta go tired, tired. I grew up in this. I'm tired. It's, I, I can't deal with it. I moved to Austin and this is me. This is my personal experience. I get to Austin, talk to people in Austin. I'm completely blown away by Austin because everybody's got a job at Apple, Dell, huge tech companies. It's upper middle class. You know, the problem in Austin is gentrification. And I'm going, you mean property values go up here? I was like, dude, this place is amazing. Like, I feel like I grew up in Haiti <laughs> and I came to the U.S. and they're like, no, it's just urban sprawl. It's it's horrible. And I was like, the biggest city in my state went underwater, bro. 
Like Texas is great. And then when you look at it, historically speaking, and this is me as a brokenhearted kid, you understood that all of that crazy New Orleans culture, when the, the diaspora would happen because hurricanes would hit and then people would flee to cities like Houston. Now, what I heard for years, including here in Austin, is like crime got horrible here in Austin or Houston, you know, when Katrina happened. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> Like you had people with nothing who were now quote unquote on the news being called refugees. And the thing is that's happened historically. That's not a one-time occurrence. This is something that's happened cyclically, which has also spread Cajun and Creole culture through the United States, including like food or music or whatever. Knowing that as somebody who's from Louisiana, I get even more intrigued about Texas, just from the little bit of culture little bit of travel that I've done. And there are parts of Texas, like West Texas, I've never seen. But remember that myopic thing where like we focus on one thing? Like right. I had a friend move in from Florida. They went to some small town just north of Austin. They were at a diner, you know, on a sun Saturday morning or something. And somebody asked them if they want a breakfast taco. And they're like, what? <laughs> And it was like a record scratch. Like everybody in the diner turned and like looked at this person like, do you have no culture where you're from? Like, you don't know what a breakfast taco is? It's so interesting to me because that one thing, when I, I'm in Austin, tacos, it, Austin introduced me to tacos. This one specific, right? I go down to Brownsville, I go to a diner and it looks like something in Brownsville. One, it's like eight hours south. So I'm in the same state. I have driven eight hours to the southern tip of Texas. I'm still in Texas, it's right on the border. And I get into something that looks like no country for old men. Like it's it's this border, like there's a, the sheriff is sitting there and the Mexican or a guy of Mexican ancestry. He's got his hat down. Hey. People are having coffee and eating. And here's hey. this gringo from Austin, me, you know, going, hey, I want two breakfast tacos and a coffee. And she's like, sir, they're huge. And I go, what? Because in Austin, a breakfast taco is a little foil. It's wrapped in foil. It's kind of portable. It's got a little cup of salsa, you know? And she, and I'm like, how many people do people normally order? And she's like, one. Right. And I go, oh, well, give me one barbacoa taco, and, you know, and coffee. It's the size of a plate. And it's on a flour tortilla. Yes. And it's served with a fork and a knife. And I was teaching at a local school and I asked the students in school and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. No, we eat flour tortillas for breakfast, but we eat corn for lunch and dinner. And I go, this is the Ooh. one thing. And this is the thing. This is my connection. <clears throat> that one little piece of Texas culture and the way it is infused with different crops, different regions, the old world and the new world between the French, the Spanish, the English, and the way it gets co-opted in various regions is so interesting to me. Because we're talking about political lines. Like you're looking for, you know, where Stephen F. Austin was in prison in Mexico. And I'm looking at tacos trying to figure out how did... <laughs> How did this get, you know, stuck as like, this is part of our, our, our culture? I think what you're describing, Robert, is what, what contributes to the, the belief, I will, I'll say it a myth, um, that there is a single Texas, because there's actually not. If, if, if it's true, and, and I'll tell you that it is, that if you're in Texarkana, Texas, 
uh, that you sit closer to Chicago than you sit to El Paso. You know, that starts to give you the idea of the breadth, the, the geographic breadth of Texas. And we, I say we, I, I'm also an, a foreigner to Texas. I grew up in Maryland, in Baltimore, you know, and, and, and made my way here over the course of several years. But in that way, it, it gave me the opportunity to learn about the different Texas seas that, that, that there are. And that it's, it's, it's broad enough to have many different dialects of twang, you know, and many different styles of food. You can have, you can have ocean or uh, gulf that looks like an ocean on one side, mountains and, and, and valleys, you know, on the other side and plains in the middle. You know, you, when, when people call Texas a, a little country and they do it from the perspective of, hey, we once were a country, you know, and, and yes, of course, that's true. There's still the aspect of it that you can travel all through Texas, never leave the border, never cross the border into any other place, and have seen what's an entire country's worth of geography and and experiences and populations and and towns that that are that may be let's say entirely Anglo or white, you know, that sit right next to a, a town that might be you know, in, in entirely browner skin, you know, or, or Mexican or Tejano. And that's, I think that's one of the, the, the glories of, of Texas. I, I, because I do come from the outside, I still have a few of those eye rolling moments, you know, where, <laughs> where I, I hear stories and I hear, I, I hear people talk about the Texas that was, that was taught in school and, and, and was passed down one that is very myopic, you know, about, about what we are and who we should be but yet have a deep appreciation for the the different backgrounds what we've talked about the the spanish the 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 native americans and yes even the, the french who for a brief period of time op- occupied little bits and pieces of of texas and in reverse texas occupied a little bit of of the areas that are that were once known as french as well so it's it's a a place with a broad identity and it's a worthy challenge for us to be looking for the ways to say uh, that being Texas Texan means having to continually search to find how to expand our concept of what it means to be a national citizen of Texas from what it used to be of looking at simply one lens of it being a an Anglo-centric population. When you did research on Stephen F. Austin, for the the viewers who are watching or listening, Austin, of course, gets its name from Stephen F. Austin. And then who is Stephen F. Austin historically, and why was it important to find out where he was imprisoned in Mexico? Like, what did you find out from that? So a a wonderful answer to that question for me was the process of discovering First of all, that the experience that's that's considered to be the American colonization part of Texas didn't span decades and decades and decades and centuries. It was reduced to 15 or 16 years in, you know, that, that started in uh, 1822, 1821 and 22. And a story that began with the father of Stephen F. Austin, his name was Moses Austin, you know, uh, crossing a great distance after he once worked for the Spanish Empire up in Missouri in a in a lead mine, had the had a brilliant idea to try to come to Texas to become an empresario, a, a businessman in in Texas, 
and to help to help North Mexico, which is what Texas was, to expand in, in business. And because he was out of a job and he saw this as an opportunity, and because he had been a part of the Spanish Empire before, he came to Texas to try to do that. Well, he was immediately rejected. He came to San Antonio, which was deep in the heart of, of Texas at that point, and being and being run by the, the Mexican governor and, and general. There was still a great military presence there because they had just put down a giant expedition that had connected Tejano and Americans to try to take over Texas and break it away from Mexico. And this was even before the, the uh, American coming to Texas. Well, they turned Moses Austin away, and by some stroke of fortune, a friend of the both of them, the, the governor and, and Moses Austin, connected them again and said, hey, I don't think that you have your, your, your antenna on right, he said to the, to the Mexican governor. He said, if you let this man do some of his work, it's going to grow us into an industry, which at that point was the cotton industry, that will put Texas on the face of the Mexican map, put Mexico on the face of the Spanish map, and give the entire Spanish empire something to compete with in, in the European cotton market. So it's a, it's a really a broad story, and I've gone into that part as much as I can. So they drew up a contract, and this, this was in 1820. They drew up a contract, and then here was the critical moment to answer your question in that that entire connection to get things started is that 1820 was the last full year for both the Spanish in Mexico and the life of Moses Austin, because all of a sudden, within a few months, both of them disappeared. The Spanish withdrew from, from Mexico. Moses Austin died, and it left this contract in a completely untenable situation because Spanish contracts need two parents. And so they set out to find an heir of Moses Austin, and they came up with his son, Stephen F. Austin, who came back and he said, okay, I guess I'll come in and I'll take over this contract. I need to go to Mexico City first to find out what this is all about and create that business. So that was in 1822, and he came and so the very first year of Mexican independence from Texas, I'm sorry, from, from Spain, was the very first year of Texas becoming a, an independent, a, a state under management of Americans, even though it was still a Mexican state, who were going to grow cotton and help bring, you know, bring up the, the, the big business in, in Texas. So that relationship of all this newness that was happening helped them to turn the corner, but the, the, the corner became complicated when Stephen F. Austin said, okay, to make this work, I need to get people here who know how to do cotton. And how to, how to do that is to bring people over from the American South and create that colony. And what do they bring with them in order to create that cotton industry? They bring a whole new different type of population. They, they bring the slave population as well. So all of a sudden, there is a pariah population in North Mexico that's doing the raising of cotton, and slavery was against Mexican law. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it sets up all of these contradictions in, in Texas that both boom Texas business over the next decade and a half, 
but also doom Texas as being an ongoing state with Mexico. Because by the end of that 15 years, they are at each other, you know, and one is looking for complete independence from the other. One of the things I'm most confused about, and please, if you're in Texas and you see this, don't get angry at me. I didn't go to school in Texas. I'm asking questions. You know, I came from a family, and I I love my my parents and grandparents. My grandmother on my maternal side is long since deceased, and I remember as a kid, and this is just to give you some context. Like, I was born in 1977, and my grandmother would occasionally call the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression. (laughs) So, like, crazy Civil War stuff because the Mississippi was cut off as immediately as possible to prevent the distribution of goods through the Confederacy and whatever. And then you get to Texas, and it's like, is Texas part of the South? There's still this sort of, I'm like, yeah, sort of, is my answer typically. One of the things I'm most confused about is in Texas, the Alamo is a huge deal. Remember the Alamo? Like, I've been near, I've not actually gone to the Alamo, but I've been in San Antonio nearby. You got, is it Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett? And, and this is me, okay? Like, most of what I know about Texas history is from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. There is no uh, basement at the Alamo. <laughs> And like watching Davy Crockett as a kid on like the Disney Channel or whatever, you know, the King of the Wild Frontier or whatever. And then as I age and I get a little older and I read a little history, I get a little confused because I'm like, okay, so Mexico and Spain and then Anglos and then slavery and it's like the Western expansion and manifest destiny and then slavery and whether it's allowed in Texas, the the freedom fighters that, that were, as they are looked at in Texas, the people who died at the Alamo. And I know this is complex. I don't want to say this wrong. I know that there are different reasons that they were fighting for Texas independence or at least uh, separation from Mexico. But one of the key things I've seem to understood, and you tell me if this is correct, Mexico had outlawed slavery. Yes. Some of these people were landowners who owned slaves who wanted to maintain their, you know, plantations, essentially. Is that actually covered in Texas history? Or is that sort of being like, push down a little bit is it's just about Texas independence in the same way that the Confederacy was like, no, this is just, this is just about us being, having states rights and being free. Right. Yeah. I, I think that for a long time, although it was acknowledged about the, the slavery aspect of, of uh, Americans in Texas, I think that it was, it, it was sort of, and I'm going to have to use the curly quotes on the word accepted. It was accepted as just what, what happened, and it was not a, a large part of the of, of the story that led up to the concept of independence. And part of that was because Mexico, even though they had outlawed slavery, was actually secretly allowing it to happen. You know, because what they wanted more was the 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 booming business that that Texas was engaged in creating cotton. And so it was a pariah that they were willing to deal with, you know, uh, uh, for the temporary gain that they got through cotton. But it was always going to be, when we get the chance, we will even outlaw slavery in Texas. And of course, it never came to that. So that is a part of the story. 
but the contribution that that played in in the the, the story of the revolution and the the differences between Texas and Mexico were pretty minor because tech, Mexico had to acknowledge that they had permitted you know that to happen leading up to it but when they envisioned a Texas in their minds that was going to be a post anglo Texas you know they were going to outlaw slavery but what they, what they had wanted was to take over the cotton industry and keep that keep those wheels turning get rid of Americans that were that were creating that success and then sort of like take over the business aspect of it. I mean, we, we, we've heard the name Santa Ana as being the president of Mexico who led that battle, you know, against the Americans against, I'm sorry, against the Texans <laughs> that included the Americans. And uh, yet there was, th there was this difference of, of, of ideas that was even existing among, you know, Mexicans is what could be tolerated in Texas. So just like we were talking before that there are always these different shades of gray that come into the story. This is a giant shade of gray. Another one of which is that fighting alongside of the Americans in, in the, the Battle of the Alamo were the Tejano who were of Mexican and Spanish descent who were also also needed to be represented as opposing Mexico in what was going to be a takeover of the entire Texas economy. So a lot of shades of gray, you know, but it, it fortunately created a story that all could share in, you know, when it came to telling the story of the revolution. So did, was it primarily Americans, you know, in, in who had taken control of the Alamo and were using it to defend themselves? Yes, it primarily was, but it was in San Antonio, which was part of Texas, and those of San Antonio who were Texan and really knew that carrying that economy forward involved banding together and and making good as a team, you know, they were involved in the Alamo and they died as well, you know, at the hands of Mexicans that, that were under the leadership of Santa Ana. Increasingly in modern times, I... I don't like the cleaned up version of history. History is people, history is money, what I'm hearing. History is power, it's empire, and then the, the clash. And yeah. I read uh, James Lowen, Lies My Teacher Told Me, and I went, man, I'm very frustrated with my public school education because my teachers were not telling it like it is. Like this is a, a whitewashed version of history. And then, remember I said my grandmother said it was a war of Northern aggression. You know, you'd hear these murmurs about, oh, no, it wasn't about slavery in the South. It was about states' rights. And then I get a Confederate, neo-Confederate reader by James Lowen, and I still can't finish the damn book because it's so depressing. Because when you see people on the, the, you know, the floor in Georgia saying, listen, black people will never be equal to white people, period. It was ordained by God. Like, I have to put that down and put it aside because it's too depressing to read because that history has just been glossed over. Instead of, and this is uh, controversial in public schools, the bottom line is if a teacher really sits students down and gives them the complexity, the stuff that we're just touching on, by the way, it's too controversial. I watched a documentary on, on Lincoln recently, and it's like, is Abraham Lincoln a white supremacist? And it's like, like, we're dealing with a man, and we're dealing with him growing up in a time frame 
and in a certain place where like you could become a lawyer because you were an autodidact and self-studied. Like you're, you're dealing with like all of his flaws, all of his greatness, all of his foibles, all of the sadness. And it's like this back-breaking pressure, I think, when I look at Abraham Lincoln specifically, of like trying to preserve the union. Of knowing that if you fight against slavery, there is likely going to be a war that breaks out and a million people are going to die. It's like when you really look at the complexity and you really look at the English, the Spanish, the French, the native population, the, the collision of cultures, the, the bioterrorism of smallpox wiping out native populations so that by the time... You know, the real colonization began after Columbus. Much of the Americas had basically been depopulated because of biological mm -hmm. things that Europeans didn't even quite understand because their population had been sharing diseases back and forth with animals for, you know, thousands of years, essentially. When I look at the complexity, that is the controversy. And that is what is being avoided in school. And that's why there's such a dearth of quality education, because I don't think you can really cover the history without covering the complexity. When I was 19 years old and I'm like, there's a bigger world. I want to go see it. I'm going to go to Greece and Turkey. The Greeks and the Turks hate each other. And the Greeks and the Turks have hated each other for thousands of years. <laughs> And one population is now primarily Muslim, and one population is primarily Christian. And then you'd get the same exact salad, and in Greece right. it's a Greek salad, and in Turkey it's a Turkish salad. Right. And the thing is, trying to understand that as, again, a white person from the United States, from a completely different culture, you're like, this is absurd. And it's like, but it has roots of like racism, economic struggle, backlashes and wars for thousands of years. The failure to teach the controversy, to me, is the real failure. But the problem is, if a high school teacher teaches this and the students go home, the parents complain to the school board. Robert, you're, uh, you, you just hit the nail <laughs> on the head. I mean, it's, I, I talked a few moments ago about the, about the, the, the story that, that kind of opened into the little historic discovery that I had, which is that you, you can track the Texas Revolution back to the story of Stephen F. Austin being put into prison. And from there, it, it blossoms forward into getting more and more upset and more and more upset until uh, Texas colonists just, you know, um, decide that they're going to stand up totally against the, the government and the military in Texas. And then you have that, that clash and that conflict, which leads to the, the win and the, and the coming of the Texas Republic. Now take that story and balance it against what is the story of amazing loss to Mexicans. Now I'm I I love to be a patriot for for U.S. stories and and especially our military and so forth and so on. And a lot of times we try to tell all of our stories in the best possible way so that it works out that 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 we've been victorious in most of the engagements that we've been in. But one of them that is getting a lot of scrutiny now in the last decade or, or two, has been the war with Mexico, the American war with Mexico, because immediately upon Texas coming into the Union, the American Union, the American forces under Polk 
turned around and began to, under his direction, to attack Mexico, in essence, to be able to take the, the territory that was Mexican territory away from them, you know, between roughly the, the longitude of where of where Texas is all the way over to the West Coast, where California is. So what was there was a, a giant predication that was done in order for the U.S. to say, okay, we're going to go to war with you over this territory, Mexico. And they eventually did. They eventually cornered, you know, Mexico and won that war, you know, that the war between the war of uh, 1846 to 1848, the U.S. war with Mexico, and won that territory by concession, you know, on the grounds of Mexico. Well, now what happens in the Mexican education system? They need to go explain their their loss of this territory. So they they don't take and chunk out this, the story about their interaction with the with Texas and the United States in the same way that we do. What do they do? They talk about the, the war with United States where they lost all of this territory. It was 50% of their territory they lost to the United States. How do they predicate that? They say, well, that happened after the loss of Texas to, to the United States or to itself you know, as a republic, and then they work it backwards, 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 and backwards until the first event in the loss of all this territory to the United States is what? The imprisonment of Stephen F. Austin in in a Mexican position prison. So you have that story being the first story of a victory on the Texas side in creating a republic, and you have it the first step in the uh, story of tragic loss on the Mexican side. So how do you take and unify those stories? What kind of education system do we have and and how do we teach? We tend to teach in bullet points because that's the best that's the best way that we can learn. We don't talk about those shades of gray like you said, but it's in those shades of gray in in teaching those things that that get us that story of how we won or how we lost depending upon which side of that that Texas Mexican line you're on. So that's what contributes to this cultural um, gap that we have, you know, in, 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 in talking about loss on one side of the border and gain on the other side of the border that's related to the border itself. So we have to get different bullet points because it's, it's, it's a difficult thing for us to, to take and impress upon our young people or whether it's in school or in university or at any level, even on us old people, you know, it's, how do how do we do that? We if if it's down to bullet points, then we need to change our bullet points. The the complexity, and again, I, as a Louisiana person, I I have a tendency when I go somewhere, like when I went to Turkey, it was what kind of food you got. I'm from Louisiana. I, I that's just how I am, and I'm like, what kind of music you got? And then I'm like comparing and contrasting and looking at things through music, and then through food, and then through food items, and then like colonization and like old world and new world crops, you know, converging. So like pumpkins and squash are from the new world. You know, it's like looking at all of this, just in Louisiana food gumbo, uh, okra is an ingredient that came from Africa with African slaves. And then is commonly eaten in Louisiana, much maligned, by the way, I like okra. It's just those little things that for me, I have a great historical sense. I think this, this stuff is painfully interesting, but the more layers I peel back, you see this sort of complexity 
And I think, again, that whitewashing of history, trying to make it simple, especially when we're talking about, in, in your case, we're talking about these clash of empires between England, France, and Spain. Like when I would think about being in school and it's like, oh, the Louisiana Purchase, well, they just bought it. And I'm like, people live there, bro. <laughs> Like every Native American tribe up to the Canada was like part of that land and you just sold it out from underneath them. And it's like, oh, well, you know, historically, I'm sure they were like, well, they weren't doing anything with it. They're, they're savages anyway. Right. And I'm going. So in, in New England, because I lived in Pennsylvania for a year, one of the things I find most interesting and they talk about, I think it was the Iroquois Confederacy and certain things that were drawn from like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution from Native American tribes that the colonists had been interacting with for years is the British came over, you know, the Redcoats. And when they were fighting, it's like, oh, we're going to line up just like we do in European battle. And then right. colonists <laughs> were like, no, we're going to fight like Native Americans hiding in the trees and ambush right. you. Right. Right. And they learned that from Native Americans because it made sense of the topography in a military sense of like how to win a battle when, you know, in England and in parts of uh, France and Spain where people had been fighting forever, you had big open fields because trees had been cut down as they were, you know, and it's like that wasn't happening in the U.S. In the end, I, I just am completely blown away by the the complexity and the depth and i knew for instance having you on for an hour podcast we were not going to cover much it's like well <laughs> let's discuss the empires of england spain and france and how that collides in the new world that's it's too broad a topic so it's amazing for me at 44 years old to realize just how little i understand of the the history of the place that i actually live in I think that what we need to do is in our in educating ourselves about this is to take to, to change the formula for our education so that instead of it trying to be based in facts that are debatable as whether we've chosen the right facts is to try to anchor it in the idea that we're continually learning and that that curiosity is is what's going to take us to the next level because we can teach I mean you can teach curiosity. You can te you can at least teach that it is the agent by which we go and acquire the 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 facts that we need to further that to keep pushing that border out, you know, of, of what we understand, so that it encompasses more and more, rather than to say we have this finite set of, of facts that tells us how we got from this epic of you know of Texas history or American history or Mexican history to the next epic, you know, how to how to dissolve that story down into biteable bites for our for ourselves and continue that curiosity for learning because that's that's what's going to carry what we have in our generation which is i think it's actually starting to happen you know to to the next generation by telling them uh, don't don't take for granted that what you're learning here is the end of the story you know this is the best that we understand it right now and yeah you'll be graded on it you know but <laughs> well what is to be discovered tomorrow about this can rewrite the books for the next generation and your children yeah i just totally geek out yeah I'm, I'm, i got a million questions and a million thoughts and texas history specifically i think is its own niche 
for a variety of reasons, probably be because of what you mentioned about those empires colliding through this particular you know, geographic landmass. Yes. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a good crucible right now. And, it's, and I think it's good that Texas is going through these struggles right now to, to define, redefine for itself. So if you're, if you're in Texas and you hear about stories like what's going to happen with a cenotaph down in, uh, on the uh, Alamo territory, you know, how, why are things changing as to why we're, how we're interpreting the Alamo story? And it, it's got a lot of people up in arms. And it deserves to. I'm not saying that it deserves to change to something else, but if it's in the if it's in the domain of the fact that we're constantly re-examining those things and trying to figure out on uh, a I don't know year by year or decade by decade basis what best tells our story about us and ourselves, you know, then it's it's worthy just to be going through it because we know that that struggle is what produces. And you can probably talk better than I can about this. You know, about what develops muscle, you know, this is the muscle that we need to develop. And it doesn't happen by just sitting down and, and, and taking steroids. You know, I, I'm, I'm out of my territory, Robert. Uh, so w- what is it in, in terms of what we're discussing that's going to actually preserve that discussion, not end the discussion, but, but keep us talking about it and, and keeping us recognizing that there are those shades of gray and there are those complexities that, that continue to bamboozle us, you know, in, in moving forward. But the importance is the motion, not, not the final frontier. <laughs> yeah. I'm taken by a uh, film and I'm not a film critic, but I do enjoy cinema and I told you that I started watching just the other day because we had that email, Texas Rising. I found it on Amazon and Bill Paxton in it and the guy who played Negan in The Walking Dead. It was like, this is a pretty good cast. And I watched like an episode and I'm, I'm nearing the end and I look up a, a review and they're like, it's horrible. <laughs> they're like, this has no historical, oh my God, it's just completely... What I'm so interested in is like uh, I saw the documentary about Ray Charles called Ray and for better or worse, because I haven't read the history and I haven't read biographies about Ray Charles, the thing that's on the screen becomes the history. Yes. For, for better or worse, you know, it's like the storytelling that we do through cinema, it used to be newspapers and books, but things have, have changed, you know, that becomes the history. So yeah. it makes me more interested to try to look up and find out you know, what other documentaries are out there. And I'm the crazy person. I'm like, oh, there's there's a 30-hour-long documentary on the Russian Revolution. I'm like, well, I don't have anything going on this weekend. <laughs> I tell people I specialize in depressing documentaries. I probably need to look up more information about what's out there because I'm assuming there's pr- some probably uh, pretty good uh, documentaries about the subject. Strangely, even though there have been over the course of almost 100 years, probably seven different films that were made uh, that were called The Alamo. The most recent one that was produced in in the early 2000s is actually pretty amazing in terms of its forethought into trying to tell several different sides of the story. So most everything that we've talked about here in terms of the, if you're on the inside, you get one story. If you're, if you come from 
from Maryland or Pennsylvania or Louisiana, you know, you're going to get the, the eye rolling parts of the story. You know, if you come from Mexico, you're going to get, you know, the story of loss. A lot of these get focused really well into this dramatization. It's filmed very well, was was done with with the storytelling of a, of a lot of good historians and a lot of good storytellers. So I would actually point anybody toward that. And if you're if you're not tired of seeing Alamo movies, you know, and if you're not tired of the Alamo being what represents, you know, the the the, the Texas story, you know, I would say it's a good, it's actually a good film to watch to start to get the idea of some of that complexity and how it came down to representing a pivotal point in in the Texas story, which under any interpretation of the Texas story, the Alamo was a pivotal point. I'm continuously astonished at how a story of of where people lose the battle can can be the story of telling the story of texas and of course it that's what happened in the story of the alamo is the is the people that are posited as the good guys lose you know it's a story of of loss to the to the mexican army you know your your texas history you know that it's just a few weeks later where there is a a catastrophic catastrophic loss on the Texas side where where a handful of people that are semi-trained Texas soldiers overcome a a, a well-trained Mexican force in a battle that lasts 18 minutes where 600 people are lost on the Mexican side and only eight people are lost on the on the Texas side it's it it's an astonishing story that's still being studied by battle historians today. So there's there there are those exciting stories to tell that talk about that pivotal moment. But we've got to escape that moment and get it out into the rest of Texas history because Texas is that that multicultural front even today, you know, that has actually enjoined many more cultures even since that time into what we call the Texas story. Again, being a a fan of a film, when House of Cards was playing, this is before the, I forget his name, the guy who was leading the the show. Kevin Spacey? Yeah, Kevin Spacey. There was a Me Too thing in like the last uh, season or whatever. But I remember in the show, they had a Native American delegation there at the White House, and they wanted them to take down the picture of Andrew Jackson. Right. And I go, here we go. Like this is, and this is the history. Think about what it meant to a native population. And I've heard recently, like, oh no, we don't call it the Trail of Tears anymore. It was a, it was a voluntary relocation. And I'm like, ooh, George Carlin is rolling over his grave. Right. <laughs> it's like multiple syllables, just dampening right. the language. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. oof, man, it. And again, it's in film, it's this one little little moment, but it's the same thing that when I look you... at it through different lenses, the way that, you know, things are interpreted, I don't have any apprehension or misunderstanding at why people who have been historically disenfranchised are pissed off. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, right. but it's a complexity and it's got to be, to yeah. me, for me to have a, a more clear understanding, it's got to be addressed and understood. Absolutely. 
And I think that the trying to turn to certain media to do it, and by media, I mean, I, I include entertainment, I include the, the, the media itself, you know, or, or, or history or academia. In terms of the, the item, items that are actually driving the story across right now, I'm actually finding that the people who are, are involved in retellings in, in fiction, at least it, it, I hope it's true on my part, are actually trying to go out to win some of the perception concepts, you know, to be able to reflect that in, in these retellings of the story. And I think people are, viewers are smart enough to know when they're looking at something that only gives them what they're wanting to see, you know, if they're, because that's such a short-lived wow moment. To, if, if, if you see something and it already confirms something that, that you think or feel, there's that moment where you go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And it's like, well, did it teach me anything new? You know, did it, did, it, did it take me to a place where I where I travel? Because those are the places that help to build our muscle in, in understanding who we are, giving us an impression that we didn't have before. So I think that entertainment is kind of carrying a, a, a large bucket, you know, of the uh, bucket load of what it is that we need to experience while we're sometimes relying on some of the very distortedly colored impressions that we're getting, uh, for example, through media where you can watch one through a red lens, one through a blue lens and have something less than a 3D experience when, when we try to bring bring it together through those goggles. Yeah. How, how, how do we get through that, get to that experience? And you, you talked about some of it through the educational system, which has its flaws, you know, how, through the academic experience, which sometimes is short-lived in terms of its readership, you know, it's like a lot of a lot of good books are out there. How do we drive people to those, you know, to to get some of those neutral impressions? And and how do we have the the know-how to tell the difference in areas where we start off ignorant, but we have people that are more than willing to tell us what it is that we should believe? And that that includes me, you know. I, I if 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 there's something that I say that 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 isn't correct, I shouldn't be believed because I'm so vociferous, you know, about about expressing it. It needs to be. It needs to hold true against contrasting impressions. You know, so it puts each individual totally in the driver's seat for for what it is that they're hearing, and what they need to go get, and not not allowing them or, or saying that it's okay for them to use some external source, whether it is the media or academia or, you know, our schooling experience or entertainment to be that source, to give it to us. I'm in charge of myself. You know, everyone is in charge of themselves. And so they need to be serious about going to, to get that. There's the, the controversy. And one of the things I noticed growing up was the closer you get to modern times, more controversy. The further you go back, it's like there's less emotional attachment. So if we talk about the, you know, conspiracy, you know, and was was Abraham Lincoln actually killed by John Wilkes Booth? People are like, eh, like, not a big deal. But if you talk about Kennedy, oh, ooh, right. it's like, it's too close. Right. When I was a kid, um, this is before the Iraq War. So during my lifetime, there had been no wars. My father's generation and my uncles, who did not serve in the military, but 
were around Vietnam, the Vietnam War was interesting to me. And I remember being in middle or high school and doing a report about the Vietnam War and talking about the Gulf of Tonkin incident and some student in class, Clarence, if you're out there, I think you went in the military. Love you, love you, bro. Miss you. I think it was Clarence asked, he's like, you know, after I gave my little spoken word presentation, he's like, I'm actually confused. Was like, was Vietnam a war? And I'm a kid. I'm a kid who's like reading stuff in books and, you know, like I don't, I'm not a historian. I'm a kid. And I go, well, yeah, I mean, it's called the Vietnam War. And my teacher said, no, it was actually just a police action. For it to be a war, the United States has to declare war. And in my head, I wanted to go find a Vietnam vet who's in a wheelchair and wheel him in and go, it's all right, bro. Just stand up, walk around. It wasn't a war. And this is me, the beginning of a fledgling comic and cynic, essentially, going. Now, just to give you a little more complexity, years later, I saw a documentary with McNamara. And McNamara all but admits that the Gulf of Tonkin incident was something they lied about to instigate the war in Vietnam. And I'm like, oh, my good Lord. Like, what is... And this is not that old. You know, this is like, when I say... A conspiracy. This is stuff that is not that ancient. MK Ultra was not that long ago. Kennedy was not that long ago. When you're going back to the formation of the country or the formation of Texas as a U.S. state or as the Texas Republic, it's still emotional, but it's more removed from our everyday experience. And that's where I think there's there's so much interesting you know conversation. Like you think. Well, maybe it's not connected to us. In other words, how does it affect our everyday lives? Like I was a kid in school, you know, studying about the Vietnam War. And it was like you saw like, oh, no, it's not really a war unless Congress declares war. Otherwise, we just send troops over to die for some reason that they don't understand because they're engaging in police action. Instead of doing what American military does best, which is go in and actually fight and decimate, you know, our enemies. And then we're not real good on the cleanup record is is what I've seen due to Iraq and due to Afghanistan. And that's me being biased and somebody who doesn't come from a military family. Right. Well, we're very practiced in these distinctions because it's in these distinctions that we make cases that we that when we look at other people's cases made, made on these distinctions, we say, well, heck, that's not a, that's not a real case. And yet we, we do it for ourselves. And so just as you're saying that, that we have this degrading effect as we look backwards more and more through history of, of looking at it with emotional eyes, where we, we get more emotionally divested of things. But what we have actually found is that as, as these things become rife with, aspects that can change what we think now we become emotionally invested in those things as well going all the way back to saying do we even want to have statues of christopher columbus you know up because of you know here's some facts from his life and and this is what he did and and so we, we we start to go back to what was probably very literally emotionally charged in that generation because Things are emotionally charged in the generations in which things occur, you know. So we can do that, you know. We can we can say, well, because it was emotionally charged then, you know, that has to be a part of our our understanding now. But a counterbalance to that approach 
And something that for me personally that I like to take is to say, let's kind of work that in a different direction and try to say, let's become less emotionally charged about what we're looking at now so that we are capable of looking outside of the blinders that we've put on, the blinders in those uh, silos of information that we trust to say, okay, let's actually look into areas that we're, we've been told that for our silo, we're not allowed to look into, you know, to get, to get impressions. And it doesn't mean we have to embrace those things overnight, but it means that just being exposed to them lets us know what that, what, what the broader picture of what people are feeling now, you know, that, that, as I said, that, that emotion actually did exist, you know, not only in the Kennedy era, but in the Lincoln era and in the Columbus era, you know, all those things. But if we're able to take and neutralize, I mean, not eliminate, but to, to, to turn into neutral the, the input that we're getting so that we're capable of, of studying those things and looking at them and holding them for a moment as equal to say, well, is it right for me to look at what I'm seeing right now as being authoritative or I look at this as being non-authoritative? And then starting to, to say, okay, well, yeah, I, I retreated back to that original perspective that I had. But for a moment, I actually looked at that that opposing viewpoint, and I'm I'm at least better because of it. You know, how can we can we hold open those doors? You know, longer for us to neutralize, make neutral that experience, so that we're better judges now of even the past, let alone the present. It makes me interested again as somebody who's interested in cinema, interested in food. I want to sit down at a convention of historians and, and, and for Texas history, we'll, we'll narrow it to that. Okay. And I, I want to sit down and I want to see them break into fistfights <laughs> <laughs> because you know, they, they've got to argue. There's oh, got to be yeah. like, no, the historical record based on what we know is like that. That's yeah. baloney. Like we know this and, you know, arguments about, what is and is not actually historical fact based on the archaeological record. Right, right. And you're, you're right, because we, we tend to get so invested in our approach to things that what at the point in time when we think that we have presented a, a neutral case that, that has its hierarchy of facts that, that prove at least the one thing that we want to say, even though we're not proving it against something else, we've established that hierarchy of proof and then it starts to cement itself inside of us to where they it it becomes the way of telling that story just as i was talking about those two ways of telling uh two stories a story of gain and a story of loss that both start with that stephen f austin in in prison you know story when we have those silos now that uh, where the where the grain has cemented into into one big grain ball you know and you can you can take the silo off and it still keeps its shape that's a bad thing you know it means that we 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 now have to defend that when we're in our little conversations historian conversations or, or even citizen conversations where we can point to the historians that say what we think ought to be history you know and we can back it up we become you know many truth tellers of of history well we all know that history can tell any story that we want for it to tell. It does. <laughs> and so in order to get away from that, because we use those stories to stay in those silos, to stay perched on top of our big grain ball, you know, that, that, that 
has assumed the shape of the silo that has broken away from it. You know, to stay on top of that, you know, we we argue those facts, you know, to other people. So I guess I'm saying, yeah, go to a history convention sometime <laughs> and, and listen to some of those. Uh, some of those I, I moved from Louisiana, my first time living out of state, I moved from Louisiana to Pennsylvania. And I moved to York, Pennsylvania, because I had some friends there. It was next to Lancaster County, which is where the Amish are. And at some point, somebody I was in massage school with in Pennsylvania, we decided to go to Gettysburg. And he was part of a Civil War reenactors group and was extremely uh, well-studied. And we're talking about well-studied to the point of, like, we're walking across Gettysburg. And if he had not been with us, we didn't take an official tour. He talked for two hours about the movements of specific troops and what was going on at different stages in the battle, along with like walking by cannons and all this stuff. And I'm going, <laughs> the, the minutiae, I mean, the complexity, not just of props, not just of engineering and like weaponry, so like leading to military uh, discipline and technique. It's like, you know, we're not talking about AR-15s and semi-automatic rifles. We're talking about reloading a musket as right. people are killing each other. And it's like, because now the military, I hate to say this, it's sometimes it's like, it sounds like, well, we're sending this Tomahawk missile. We press a button here and it travels miles. We're talking about looking somebody in the eye and bayoneting people and then shooting them off of your, you know, bayonet. Like the, the complexity and leading up to the modern times. So I go from Louisiana and here's the generous sense I got. And I love people in Pennsylvania, by the way, I don't want to get any hate mail. When I got to Pennsylvania, people looked at me and were surprised that I was literate. <laughs> <laughs> They thought I went to school in a P-Row and like, you know, had alligators as pets or something. They'd watch the water boy too many times. And there was a general sense because Pennsylvania is the North, right? They were like, you could hear people say, yeah, everything just slows down below the Mason Dixon line in a derogatory way. People I lived with were like, you move too slow. And I went, what? Like, you mean physically? You know, like you just you got no drive and i'm like right. man it's 100 degrees and 100 percent humidity where i'm from right like if you right. move too fast you burst into flames like there's a reason that new orleans has a nightlife because right. in the middle right. of the summer this is a time when it was 85 degrees and it was tolerable to be out at 3 a.m at a jazz club like it and again it's like this historical thing right but then it filters all these years later into this modern narrative about, you know, what's going on. Well, uh, Robert, you probably have, have heard the adage, and it's newer to you than, than to me. I heard it my first year here, people telling me, uh, well, you can't be considered a Texan until you've been here for 40 years, but if you own a pickup truck, we'll knock 10 years off of that. You know, so <laughs> like, so... So here I am giving you the 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 Texan adage and saying with just you what you just told me about about Louisiana and Pennsylvania I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about your your abbreviated time so far here in tech in Texas so what's that experience been This is this is something I find really interesting. So Austin is weird. 
and you have to I, I'll pull I, I got re- I got references here so this is this is me in college wow and this is a white kid with a big afro this is one of the co- these photos I have from college because I was a philosophy student I was thinking deep thoughts about unemployment you know I was I listen I went into a field where free thinking was encouraged it's like, I'm yeah. interested in, in philosophy. I'm interested in history. I'm interested in food, culinary technique. I might've gone to school for culinary uh, arts if I had not decided to go into massage. But, you know, I was doing the free thinking. I was a, a crazy white kid. They're like, basically in, in Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge is a very conservative town. It was like, you mean the crazy white guy with the Afro? Like in 1996, that was a big deal. And for me, being in that context, when I first came to Austin was in 1998. It was years later when I moved. So I think Katrina was in 2005. So I moved here in 2006. Austin felt similar to Louisiana in a sense of I had seen bands here. I had seen the government mule. I had noticed it was like, Willie Nelson and Stevie Ray Vaughan and the hippies and the cowboys all kind of came together in Austin in this weird melange along with Leslie. And then I, I, I get here and everybody's like, Austin is weird. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even think Austin's really that strange. And it's like, that's cause you're weird. <laughs> but the thing that I always found really interesting was in Pennsylvania, this was my general sense. It wasn't that people weren't nice they were kind of cold. There was a little bit of like distance. I'm used to this Southern charm, Southern hospitality. Hey baby, how you doing? Like you're at a restaurant sort of thing. That same thing happened in Texas, but I never got a sense of exclusion. I never got a sense. If you're in Austin and maybe if you're from California, eh, maybe because of so much uh, immigration at this point, Otherwise, I would drive, I remember being in my Honda, I drive up north of Austin, going to some farm, I think I was going to Richardson's farm or something, and I stop, it looks like on a main street, in some little small Texas town, and it's a two-lane road coming and going, and right next to my car is a good old boy in a truck, and he's got a cowboy hat on, he's a little older gentleman, and he turns and looks at me and just tips his hat. (laughs) (laughs) And that has been the response I've seen across Texas. No one ever asks me, why did you move here? What are you doing in our town? Like they never, ever look at me like an outsider. Texas, I think also geographically, I, I suspect part of the reason for that is there's so much land. Yeah. Very little feels overpopulated unless you're in a, a dense concentrated area of population like Houston or Dallas. Right. <clears throat> They're very open. There's never been a sense of like, well, what are you doing here? Like the right. joke is it's like, like on, on the highway, this is Texas for you, those of you listening to this or watching this, you're driving, you're driving down from Dallas and it says, Hey, slow down. You're already in Texas. <laughs> right. <laughs> And because Texans are a fiercely proud people, it's a joke, but it gets yeah. people to laugh and slow down because it's like, you're already in the promised land. Like we, you know, I, I didn't grow, I, what, is, what do they say? There's like a bumper sticker. It's like, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. Right. The sense I got across the board was 
no one ever judged me because I was from somewhere else. The, it just seems to be a common thing about Texas, I suspect based on like population. Like if you talk about New York, I got the sense, the little bit of time I spent in New York, I don't know the Bronx and Brooklyn and Manhattan and the boroughs the way other people do, but it was kind of like, where are you from? It's like, I'm from Queens. And it's like, like now I'm from, I'm from Brooklyn. Like there's a little like com competitiveness where you're like, it's just like a little, it's a neighborhood, bro. But right. it's like, it's history. This is gangs of New York. Like this, this shit is old. This is as old right. as the country, essentially. Those little nuances, you know, I could tell more stories, but I just yeah. never got a sense of Texans being excluding people. Now, the, the, the difference in that is, or the exclusion to that, I think, is if you're from California, the Austinites are weird about that. And if you're from Mexico, if you're Mexican, like that gets controversial because it gets to the border wall and like immigration. But I also point out to people who are not from Texas, I think Texas has a very lopsided sense of immigration because at the same time that people don't like it, the entire economy runs on cheap labor. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I've got 20 years on you, but I'm, uh, but since, since I don't own a pickup truck, I've, I've still got 20 more to go uh, <laughs> before I can, before I can speak authoritatively, but I will say from my own experience, it's, it's been exactly like yours. I, I came during the dot-com boom in, in the, in the late, late, late nineties to Austin and uh, worked with IBM for, for several years. And uh, my experience was uh, exactly the same as yours of being welcomed and, and taken care of P people actually kind of reaching out and, and saying, here, you need to, you, you need to do this. And sometimes there's just not only paternalism, but maternalism too, you know, people that will take you, you know, take you under their wing and, and you'll get some of the, 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 the mama hen experiences as, as well <laughs> as the, the, you know, the papa rooster experience. But, but people that are really anxious for you to, to enjoy what they enjoy, and they're willing to tell you about it too. They're willing to tell you how right you are by, by having uh, had that experience. And I think that there's been such change. There actually has been a lot of change, insidious change throughout Texas uh, in, the, in the last decade to where some of the uh, oldest of traditions have kind of like started to drift backwards. Uh, one of the things uh, you, you're talking about being in South Texas uh, a, a little bit ago, and you're talking about you know driving on the highway, and I'll say that the, the two ends of that are if you you talk about that slow down, you're already in Texas thing. But <laughs> my my sons who live in Pennsylvania are just totally like to geek out on the fact that you can go east of Austin and go by the speed limit, you can go 85 miles an hour. You know that's that's <laughs> that's, that's that's totally fair. And contrast that with something that's practically almost disappeared even in south texas where have you heard of the finger point mm -mm. where if you're dri you're driving along and people are, who are doing that that old slow drive you know as, as they encountered each other you know they might not even have known each other but the thing to do was just point you know yeah. <laughs> you get close enough and you point it's like that, that you're instant friends you know you're, i i you're, rode with a friend into austin years ago and we're barreling down a highway, and this is a, a rural highway, just two lanes. And he's driving. He didn't slow down. He's just driving, and he pulls over to the shoulder. The shoulder. That's right. And he's like, yeah, this is called a Texas Pass. And I'm That's like, right. what? 
That's right. It's like it has a distinct name because there's so many yeah. rural highways where people right. are they, who live there locally are driving faster. And they're like, get out of my way. <laughs> so they drive on the shoulder while somebody passes them because they don't want to spend tax dollars building a four lane highway, but they just build a wide shoulder. That's a weird cultural nuance. And, and that it goes it goes hand in hand with that the, the Texas turnaround, which I think other states now have, but it was it was perfected in Texas, and w- which is if you're coming up to an intersection, but that there's that previous left hand turnaround that, that that will put you on the same access ro- access road or the same you know highway on on the other side, and uh, allows you to avoid two lights you know on the side that the Texas turnaround and the Texas exit you know which is you're driving along you know in a in a rural area and somebody has just decided that they're going to create an exit that takes you over to the access road by dipping down off of the off the interstate and and it's done by so many people that you know you realize well there must be a good reason why so many people have figured out that they need to do it right here and right now and sure enough you you go another mile or so down the way and you you hit an intersection that does not have an intersection, an, a cloverleaf or you know an intersection. Somebody has blazed the path by creating a, a Texas exit, you know, to to get over to the access road so they can be on their merry way without having to um, uh, tr- trouble anybody else, you know. Uh, so it all, it all coalesces into Texas driving, and I'm, at twenty years, I'm still a newbie and still pointing that out to to people that uh, I introduced to Texas, but yeah. um, fun stuff. So, and I'll, I'll point this out again, this is weird nuances, because again, it leads right into this discussion. There's been this uh, thing in Austin, so I-35 splits Austin, and there's been increasing issues. I was talking to a friend of mine, and they said that, because I moved here in 2006, and they're like, Austin stopped being cool in 1998. And I'm like, great, the year I visited. So, okay, so Austin's no longer cool. It's no longer weird. But the dividing line is I-35. And when you get into East Austin, that was where the Black and Hispanic population lived. And there's been increasing gentrification. There's a weird racism thing they talk about with I-35. But then when I went on a tour in New Orleans, and I didn't know this because I-10 has been there my entire lifetime, to my knowledge. And they're like, yeah, they wanted to run I-10 right through Jackson Square because they want it close to where the shipping lanes are. But what they wound up doing is essentially running it through the poorer area in Treme, which was essentially, Mm -hmm. they were saying like a racist decision because it like divided that that land and it's like oh man even i'm on tiktok i don't know if you uh use tiktok or not but there's a lot of crazy history stuff that floats through my feed because it's something i'm interested in and i've seen them discuss this in other cities and deciding to run interstates through impoverished areas through black communities and things as a weird thing about like travel right and and you're absolutely right, especially about in Austin, about classic Austin. So right down toward the, the center of the city, communities that lived on the east side were Hispanic and Black uh, communities. And a lot of those have retained their, their identity. And some developers have actually moved into some of those those parts to to start building them up and for for whatever reasons they have which obviously is 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 money you know but it it has had the effect of changing that a little bit but but there is still that uh, identity that lives at least in the nomenclature of people that refer to austin so when you say east austin everybody 
knows, you know, sort of can put you in a, a frame of mind, unfortunately, instantly about, you know, what, what you're dealing with in, in, in terms of, of community. And I want to be careful to say the unfortunate part is not about the community, but it's about the way that we have associated those images, you know, with, you know, with, with the language that we use to delineate community. And what it is, as it's, it's an extension of the railroad first running through Texas and having what is absolutely true about the living on the other side of the tracks. So if you go to a lot of the, the, the West Texas towns that where you have, you know, the, the railroad bisecting the town, you have, you still have a lot of community origin, you know, identity or reverse those words, uh, identity about the community origin based upon which side of the track that you're, that you're on. So it's not just a euphemism. It's a, it's a, it's a reality. Yeah. There was a a conversation. I remember again, being interested in music. Ani DeFranco is a American folk musician and she has a home, I think in New Orleans. And then this was years and years ago, there was a plantation between Baton Rouge and New Orleans and she was trying to have a retreat there. And there was a massive outcry of like racism. That would be like holding a folk festival at Auschwitz. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. Like if you went through the South and like wiped out every plantation home, that's a site for weddings and a site for uh, tourism and bed and breakfasts and whatever. And in addition to the fact that the, the local population of people are working at these facilities, because like New Orleans, a big deal after Katrina was like the Super Bowl and like New Orleans is back because they rely on tourism. Mm-hmm. It's like if you went through the South and wiped out every building that was racist, there wouldn't be anything left. And there wouldn't be anything prior to 1970, likely. It's like then the argument is like, what do you do with these buildings? And Ani DeFranco tried to give some sort of press release talking about it. And I felt like it very much felt like people didn't understand Louisiana culture. Like Mm -hmm. I've been through St. Francisville and areas of plantation homes because you had plantations along the river, which were using it as a tributary to be able to get cotton onto the river, going down the new Orleans for trade and shipping. Mm -hmm. So it's this weird, you know, confluence of things because you'll look at a specific plantation home and this is in Louisiana. And then I think this specific plantation home was owned by an Australian. Right. And it's like, this is the history. (laughs) This is the complexity. This is what we're dealing with and like how to, you know, manage those things. This, this gets into some difficult territory, but I think important territory for us to be working through right now from an on the ground way where we, we know what we feel. We, we probably came into this situation where all of a sudden there are things that we do and that we appreciated you know, have this backwards look almost as if it is either racist or, or from, from, from a different generation's values. And, and we look at those things and say, well, how much have we participated in the, the transition of those items into that, that kind of a category? And I'm here to say, I, I, I don't want to be the person that comes along to make that definition for anybody else. I do have ideas for myself about how that relates, but the more important thing as a culture is that we're actually going through that. It's painful. 
it's painful to hear, you know, if you're if you're on ex- extremes at one end or the other, to hear that there is a total embracing of it or even a total di- divestation of it. It's like we actually, as we become more sensitive to these things, we know that there are that it's an important conversation to have, and it's not an important conversation to skip as a culture. So we may cringe when we when we talk about you know monuments that still exist or monuments that have been covered up, depending upon which which way that you look at some of these questions. But the more important thing is that we're resolving it as a community of people that live in the present by by going through this right now. So I'm not in a hurry to have my own feelings of how this should play out be rewarded, you know, with instantaneous gratification where the where the culture immediately adapts to what I think is the right thing, you know, about the way this should happen. I, I would like to find a way to celebrate the idea, if I can use that word. That's an overused word, isn't it? That's an overpositive word for the idea of bearing with something to get the greatest possible value from it. But that's what we need to do with these conversations that are happening. Live in those conversations, participate in those conversations, and see what we can do about having the, you know, both ends kind of coming around and and being enjoined in the in the conversation so that we can, you know, hear and be heard. Now, did I take what you just said and kind of elevate that to, to, to a level where, it, where it's uh, impractical? I, I hope not. No, 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 no. I, I think, again, you know, I, I have people on the podcast and, you know, like previous people have been like hog hunting. And then you realize, good Lord, here we go again. So it's Texas, wildlife, native flora and fauna, wild pigs, ecological destruction, financial issues, regulation and politics related to like control and like hunting licenses and all this stuff. You know, I went to a a plantation and I love this stuff. I totally geek out about it. I went to a plantation and it was a museum um, where you, you know, travel around the grounds and everything. And this wasn't a stately plantation. There were portions of it that were a little bit overgrown And then we were out on the porch. And in the South, especially in Louisiana, the porch is a big deal. Having a front porch was like you got to hang out with your neighbors because in the evening when it cooled down, especially if you had a screened porch, ooh, you know, you need to keep the mosquitoes (laughs) off, you know. Having a swing and hanging out like you could watch the kids, talk to your neighbors across the street, wave, say hello. We're at this plantation and the bulk of the living quarters was on the second floor because of floods. Right. Right. And then there was a huge, just massive porch. And there were these structures that I had never seen before. And it looked like, you know how when you have blinds in your house and you turn the little thing and they, they, they slant. What had happened was the, like, if this is the side where we are, there was a huge porch and there there were these slats and they were big pieces of lumber but there were gaps. So what happened was the airflow continued, but it didn't hit the wall on the building because they were like blinds. And I had never seen this architectural structure ever. I don't, I don't remember ever seeing this anywhere. And they said that this at the plantation, the slaves on the plantation came from a specific island where they had lived for a while in the Caribbean. And this was from somewhere in the Caribbean that was taken and then built onto the plantation as they constructed it. And I was like, again, Mm -hmm. just completely blown away. 
it's like this, this weird, you know, history, mm. architecture, all this stuff colliding into something that was innocuous that most people would be like, what? And just walk past. Right, right. I was thinking about that as you were talking earlier about your South Texas experience of, of the giant tortilla. You know, I actually had the exact <laughs> same experience in Port Isabel, you know, getting 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 that giant breakfast taco and 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 starting off ordering two and getting the weird look. It's like, well, if you want to, and, and that person didn't correct me. And I ended up with these two that, you know, okay, so, but I, I, I got your story. But the but the cultural sharing story in that 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 blew me away. It was learning that this was the this was the area that actually introduced the the flour tortilla. We always think that that we, we think about that. And we think, well, they're they're Taco Bell, so they must be Mexican, as if there's anything Mexican at Taco Bell, you know. But um, <laughs> there is. But the you 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 said the most incredible thing a few moments ago when you said you know that you were kind of schooled in a in a cool way that you know this is what this is what we eat at, at breakfast you know this kind of tortilla where at dinner we eat the other kind well we, you're talking about being in the region that that introduced you know the, the flour tortilla you know in in north mexico so picking up these things and the way that we the way that we pick them up as a culture and we move them along and only by having incidental learning experiences do we do we realize that we've benefited from this this wearing the magnetic glove, you know, work, walking through society, picking up, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the lint and the, you know, the, the little pieces, the, the bits and pieces that form who we are, you know, as, as a culture, and then being able to, to unravel it little by little and finding out that, hey, we're not who we are because we are this one silo of, of culture that we're the same as we were, you know, 500 years ago. We're this amalgam of culture that, that, is everybody and everything has had its influence in who we are. So I, I really like that you're sharing these stories, you know, that, that, that say in Texas, you know, we've, we're, we're not who we are because we ended up being born with, with the right characteristic that allows us to fall into the story that of people that align this way at the Alamo, you know, that's kind of like a real uh, labyrinth of a way to get an identity, you know, yeah. but, but, but the fact is that, that we are bits and pieces of our language, of our music, you know, of our, of our cuisine, of our education, you know, of, of all the things that, that make us who we are in Texas, you know, come from every different, of every other place in Texas yeah. and New Mexico, Spain, Louisiana, you know, and so forth. Yeah. I mean, so I'm still learning about tacos, chili, and then like barbecue. There's a three very distinct things in Texas that are very important to Texas culture. Oh. Oh. And then I look at it historically, and then I'm from Louisiana, and I'm again, I, w I would have gone to culinary school had I not gone into body work. But then I come to Louisiana, and I'd cook my uh, ex-wife and her children uh, red beans and rice. And we have red beans on Monday. Yeah. And I would tell people, yeah, it's tradition to have red beans on Monday. And they're like, what? And I'm like, in Louisiana, Monday was the day you did the laundry. So you could put on a pot of red beans and rice sure. and just let the red beans simmer all day while you right. did the laundry. And they're like, whoa, I yeah. had no idea. And it's like that little thing is so intrinsically linked as like, well, just me, like red beans and rice. What do you mean? <laughs> you know? right. It's like the first time I came to Texas and I, I, I can't remember the first time, but I know that at some point I discovered refried beans. I discovered refritos. And I went, oh my God, I where have I been living? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
yes. Uh, obviously, which which have to be eaten in moderation, <laughs> in every way imaginable. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, it's been a, a great conversation with you. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts? And we did twice as much as I I thought we would. But these are the conversations that I love. I like that we could talk a little bit about the history, but then also connect it to our modern you know, lives. Is there something else that you really wanted to add? Well, Robert, I, I, I want to add that I feel the same way. Uh, I, I appreciate the chance to be able to share uh, perspectives of Texas in both an, well, in an extra Texas terrestrial way, <laughs> you know, in, in world culture, in other United States culture and, and uh, continental culture. I, I guess I would like to say the things that we've talked about actually form the, the mission that my fictional writing has, you know, to to actually, if, if, you've, if you've liked the kind of conversations that we've had, to actually kind of go maybe take a look at To the Republic, which actually digs into a lot of the way that these cultures interact, in, you know, through characters that are on the ground, you know, in between Austin and, and Jalisco in, in Mexico, that broad band of territory. And I, I would like to think that it is a, a, a story that's told in a, a, a good page-turning way, but also gets through that method of being able to talk about culture and, and why things that work the way they do in the territory that's now getting a lot of attention. So I want to thank you for having me on, and, and uh, I, I, I hope that the things that, that we got a chance to share have a chance to root and maybe give people a chance to, to take a look at our, our uh, culture, our shared culture, in a, in a new and exciting way. For people to contact you, they can go to bruceclavey.com, um, again, starting up above you. And then the books that are currently available on Amazon, what are those? Okay, so the, the one book is The Inquisition of Stephen F. Austin. It is the book that, that uh, captures the research that I did that led to the discovery of the dungeon in Mexico City, the on-site discovery. The other book that I have out is a fictional book. It's the first in a series of books that's, that the books are, the series is a, is told in a contiguous way. So this is book one. It's called, the, the series is called To the Republic. And it, it, it introduces the, the characters and the story that, that take place in the present, but rely on 400 years of, of backdrop history in order to tell this, the, the story of why people's uh, attitudes and actions work the way that they do in the border region. It, it takes on, it goes on an exciting tour through a political twist that, that, that uh, take people through things that they might feel like they've experienced recently in terms of action at the border or even things like downtrends in economy or it's even got a reference before it actually happened to the to the terrorist attack on the power network that, that happened last December and also on a freak Texas freeze that that occurred a few months ago and the the, the responding activity that happened with the Texas power grid and ERCOT. It's sort of like it was published a few months before all those things happened. So I kind of feel like I get a little bit of fingernail dirt, you know, in what's happening now in Texas. But if you want to see the way that those things kind of coalesce and, and tell a story about modern Texas's struggle and benefit working in a multicultural situation, then To the Republic is a story for you. Nice. Nice. So listen, guys, uh, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast, Bruce. I really, really appreciate you coming on. And Bruce, hold on for just one second after I shut down the recording. We can okay. chat for just a second. 
But uh, thank you all for tuning into the podcast. It's Robert Gardner Wellness. And again, you can find Bruce Clavey at bruceclavey.com. You guys have a great day. And I really, really appreciate it, Bruce. Thank you so much for uh, participating in the podcast with me today. Thank you, Robert.